this week i want to last week we recapped some key ideas from chapter four um this week i want to focus a little bit on chapter five but as there are continuous point that follows one another i just want to recap a little bit key ideas that we spoke about last week so in very in a few words compared to last week the idea that we're coming across in chapter four is the idea that the just as creation itself is an act of god the absence of god's presence is also an act of god and the fact that we feel the absence of God. And I want to revisit the parable that we brought last week because I don't know if I brought it out the way I wanted to, and I want to hopefully do it justice this time. Hasidus likes using the analogy of the light of the sun. And we said, and we brought it out in two different ways. The first thing is, is that when the sun is shining, in order for us to be able to appreciate the light of the sun, without the sun being harmful to us, we need to have an atmosphere, an environment which is protects, which kind of filters the radiation and the rays of the sun. And even if you stare straight in the sun, you may need to wear special sunglasses so that it doesn't blind you, right? There's all different elements from the sun which can be harmful and we are in an environment and we also use measures to protect us so that we benefit from the light of the sun properly. In the same way, if the force of creation would be the only active force in creation, it would be too dominant of a light for us to exist independently and feel as if we're on our own. So therefore, there's a need, a necessity for God to act in two polar opposites at the same time. On one hand, he's creating, he's giving, and at the same time, he's concealing and withholding. The second part of the parable, which I want to focus on a little bit more, to re I want to really hone in on this point, on the fact that the absence of God is also God being present, is the fact that, as we mentioned, and you look out into the universe, what do you see? You see darkness. Now, is the ray of the sun not shining in the, throughout the universe? Is it only visible on planets? Is the sun, is light only present in the planets, I would assume that the light of the sun is shining everywhere. And yet, when you look into the universe, do you see light or do you see darkness? You see darkness. So, a key idea we can take away from here is that the existence of darkness does not mean there's an absence of light. Even though we may see darkness, that doesn't mean that the sun isn't shining in that area. And the same is true for our reality. What we see as darkness is actually God shining his light, God being present and God being active. The only difference between the moments we are we of light and the moments of darkness is that in the moments of light, we're in an environment where we've filtered or we're in a way which we the light reflects to us as well. The other moments of the light, we can't, we're not, we don't have the lenses to see the light shining and instead we see darkness just like when you look out in the universe you see darkness even though the light is shining and the sun is shining throughout the entire universe and that's a key idea that chapter four wanted to bring away and as we brought it into our lives is where we see how even though 
challenges or moments of darkness may seem dark, they're also catalysts and challenge us and bring out a deeper side of ourselves. There's a hidden positive in the negative that we experience as well. And where we see this on a typical example is through in general, whenever we want to create force, or whenever we want to build up energy, what's the best way to do that is by building up pressure. Take, for example, a stream of water, which is running very, you know, it's a very slow stream of water, and you want to create a waterfall or build up energy, what do you do? You create a dam. The larger the dam, the more water build up. All of a sudden, the water now starts gushing forth once it reaches over the dam with much greater energy. Or the whole way we got trains to start working off cold off cold in the first place is by building pressure from the steam. The more pressure, the more force. And uh, for those who are able to make it to the soundtrack event, the in life, when you want to throw something forward, the farther you pull your hand back or the follow, more you pull a slingshot back, the further something projects forward. Right? So this is all a result, the reality that's part of creation is that in in a, in the way in which God's light is able to become real within our lives is only or have a real effect in our lives is only by God as at the same time holding himself of acting in a way which he's not felt so that we can feel independent and we can discover our, our God on our own, that we can have the freedom of choice and that we can grow and be the individual that God intended when he bit, made creation. Okay, so this is in, if I if I, I don't know if I could do chapter four just in just a few words, but those are some key ideas that we walk away with from chapter four. And I want to reiterate, because this is going to be what chapter five is going to tone in a little bit on, is the fact that the act of absence of God is not in any way God actually being absent, that God is just as present, just in a way which we don't feel it. Then this leads into, as I mentioned last week, the question that chapter five has. Reality is, is that God has two different modes. There's the mode of God being felt, and then there's God not being felt. And in very practical terms, it's God working within nature or God working where nature's rules don't apply. Right? There's a, let's put it this way. When you sit down to play a board game, so when you're sitting with a bunch of adults, tend to follow the you tend to follow the rules of the rule book. Now, what happens if it's an adult playing with kids and the kids don't really know the rules? So then there's something called you play by my rules, right? So the especially if it's an older kid, not necessarily an adult, so they dictate the terms, and somehow or another the rules are subject to change sometimes towards the um, you know as as necessary for a certain person what's the difference the difference is is when the first time you're sitting down on a preset of rules which are unchangeable the second time you're relying on an individual who created those rules so as long as he likes those rules you play by it but if he wants to change it the person who made the rules could change the rules or um as i find it sometimes interesting like there's when you sing someone else's song and you forget the words you can't make up words and substitute it but if the composer is singing the song and he decides to change the words it's his song he can do whatever he wants with it right 
so in the same way in creation, God created the world, and he did create in a way which his which we feel his absence. How do we feel his absence? Because God created a set of rules which everything seems to run by, primarily nature. So when we interact with the world, the end of the day, is this world a reality set by a set strict set of rules? Or is it dependent on God's mood? And whenever God wants, he's switched, he could switch things around. And our existence isn't as set in stone or as real as we may feel it is. Okay, fair question? Based off what we're saying, or should I explain that again? Got it? So which is it? That's the question. That's the question. All right? So this is the question that Chapter 5, um, chapter five wants to that wants to address this is kind of a footnote it's a sign note it's within a parenthesis within the tanya but it being we're discussing it's an idea i think which is crucial to point out so we read this last week we'll read it again because we're going to focus a little bit more on it so over here in chapter five with regard to this the rabbi stated at first god considered creating the world with the attribute of judgment but he saw that the world would not endure so he combined it with the attribute of mercy so as I mentioned last week, this time I'll show you inside. There's two names as we in chapter 4 that were mentioned. There's the name of God, Shem Elohim, the name of Elohim, and then there's the name of Havaya, yud Hey, and the vav Hey. In creation, in the first chapter of creation, as you'll notice over here, this is the name Elohim. And you see there's only one one, one of God's names mentioned. So in the beginning, Elohim created the heaven and the earth. And Elohim said, let there be light. Elohim saw it was good, and it was one day. Elohim, the name Elohim is the only name that God used throughout the entire first chapter of Genesis. Elohim, at the end, Elohim saw it was good, and it was the sixth day of creation. Comes chapter 2, chat line Four, uh, verse four, after it speaks about Shabbat. Now it says, repeats the story of creation, and specifically the sixth day. Over here it says, these are the generations of the heaven and earth when they were created. On the day that what created? The Lord God. Two names of God. So if you look in the Hebrew, it uses both names of God, Havaya and Elohim. The name of yud heh vav and Elohim. So the the Kabbalistic masters noting this um, noting this seemingly anomaly sorry within the uh, within the text made the following observation that the creation initially conceptually was meant to be only created through the mode of Elohim which is the mode of God which is the mode of concealment. However, the world will not endure, and therefore he created the world within the mode of mercy. Using the, the sort of say, revealing element of God. So the Tanya over here, what the Kabbalah wants to stress over here, is that the mode of, again, this idea that the mode of God, the let's take for a let's step back for a second. What's saying over here? It's saying that technically God could have created the entire world without Shem Havaya, 
the mo without the revelation creator, sort of say, a component of God. How is that possible? Because the dark, the concealment is not a exterior facet that God employs. It's God himself. It's just God acting in a concealed way. So technically, being that it's an act of God, God could have done the act of creation employing his mode of Elohim, of concealment. This is why I was reiterating from the last chapter that the absence of darkness doesn't mean the absence of light. The mode of darkness is actually a mode of, it's a mode of presence. It's God is still present in the moment. So God could have created the entire world because the act of concealment, nature, and is all God himself. It's not a foreign, distant part of God. So God could have done the entire creation employing that mode within him. However, had God done that, it would be very difficult for the mission of the world to be achieved. The mission of the world is to discover God within the world. If God's only interaction in this world is a way of concealment, it would almost be impossible for mankind on their own to discover that there's something beyond nature. And therefore, he employed the mode of mercy, the other element, the shame of Avaya, so that there is an element of feeling and expression of God. And where are those experiences felt? Or how can one tap into in this reality to the revelation part of God? So this is done, this attribute of mercy is expressed as divine revelation through tzaddikim and the signs of miracles recorded in the Torah. So on a practical way throughout history, the way we can tap into the revelation of God is A, through the miracles that God performed throughout history. This is why we spend so much time talking about the exodus of Egypt and the miracles that happened then. Because those were times in where God showed that nature is only an act of his own. And if he wants, he can defy nature. And also throughout history, we had special righteous people, special scholars and rebbes throughout history, which when you interacted with them, you realized that they were connected with something greater than just the material world. I wanna, I'm probably going to pause here from reading in the text and do a little outside. There's stepping back, going back to why this is so important, this idea that at the onset of creation, God employed both elements of Shem Havaya and Shem Elohim, is explained also in Kabbalah and Hasidus in the story of creation itself. If we go back to Genesis, chapter 1, the first day, what's the first thing God creates? Light. Light. And you see that God creates light and darkness. So, and this plays right into our whole theme, that both light and darkness in our realities is an act of creation. But before God creates the darkness, what does he create? Light. And it's told, um, according to many people, this light that was created is a light that's so great that God sort of say, once he created darkness, hid that light and only re be revealed later. And another element to which this comes out 
is the fact that the world was created. The first thing that was created was the water. The earth was completely, the earth only emerged from the water on day three of creation. And God called the dry land earth, uh, over here, let the water that is beneath the heavens gather in one place and let the dry land appear. The idea that Kabbalah and Hasidus takes out from both of these ideas is that God wanted that the potential for revelation should be in the part of creation. So initially, before anything else existed, what was our reality? Our reality was light. And as well, the concept of water covering over the earth in this is I don't want to get too digress too much, but water shows on oneness with God. That's why when you look at water, everything that's within the water, you just see water. You don't see the different fish and life forces that are in the water. You just see water. Well, you just see sea because within the water, everything is united. Everything is connect. All live in unison. Whereas on dry land, when you look at dry land, you see trees. You see everything lives independently. So God wanted at the onset of creation that we should feel God's presence the way God really is, the way reality is from God's perspective. And this was the reality of creation. So therefore, when later, when the act of nature takes a more dominant role, the potential to go back to that reality where we could actually feel God's presence within this earth is not something which is a novelty. It was already done before. There's, uh, you know, they say the story, the, the bring, Rashi brings it actually with this regarding Talmalek, but if you have a hot body of water and everyone's scared to go in because the water is too hot and one guy jumps in and he may even burn himself in the process. But the fact that someone jumped in already opens the potential for other people that they could go into the water unscathed. And with everything in life, it's that the first person to take that initiative is always the hardest. So over here, God took that initiative in creation. The idea that the Talmud, back to the, the Tanya quotes, the Midrash brings out that from initial conception, God employed the name of Avaya is to tell us that the ability for revelation is not just something where God came in later and you said, you know what? Let's change the rules around. And like the adult that you know is playing with kids and is changing the rules as the rules go along to for their benefit no and the initial part of the rules in creation is the ability for god to be present and the ability for one to reach beyond what norm what naturally one can achieve and this is why when we go back to, so how do we define our reality? Do we define our reality that we're limited to the rules? Or are we, you know, or do we know the boss so the rules don't apply to us, right? When you get over, pulled over by, if someone gets pulled over by a speed ticket, if you know the officer, all of a sudden maybe the rules don't apply, right? So in the way we interact with our world, our reality... Is it that we're defined by reality or, you know, we're, we go to Rosh Hashanah Kippur, we pray to God and we tell God, you're your father, our, you're our father, our king, or you're our dad. So, hey, 
the rules don't apply to us. There is a certain truth to both. On one hand, we are defined by nature. At the same time, we also have a way to live beyond nature. I mentioned it last week, I'm going to, I'll repeat it again, just so we can reiterate this concept, is the concept that by the temple, if one measured the ark and the sticks of the ark, you would see that there was no room, extra room in the Holy of Holies. Yet, reality is, when the high priest would walk into the Holy of Holies on Yom Kippur, he was able to walk around the ark. So on one hand, naturally, there was no way to fit. The, the, there was no way that was possible. But at the same time, it would happen. So nature and a beyond nature, the laws and the suspension of the laws were both coexisted in the same place. How is that possible? Because creation initially was created with both forces together. And throughout history... I didn't th think of this idea before, but I think it really applies. A lot of religions will post and explain the how do we know prove God's existence? Because when you after 120, you'll go to heaven and you'll discover the truth and you'll have wanted to believe X, Y, and Z, so on and so forth, and so on and so on. God, what does God tell the Jewish people? How will you know that I exist by your existence? The fact that there is a Jewish people is a testimony to God's existence. Now, is our existence a miracle or a natural thing? It's both. Naturally, we exist because we're procreating. We're living within this world. We didn't, you know, we didn't find yet a spaceship. We haven't found another planet to uh, to run off to so that we could shelter ourselves. We're living within this reality. And if you look statistically. And the amount of oppression and the things that we endured as a nation, probably though, naturally, we probably should have died out and hung up our hook and disbanded what we believe in years ago. But despite all that, we're still here. And historically, we continue to make comeback after comeback after comeback. And as small of a percentage of mankind that we are, we continue to be a very on the forefront of so many things throughout history. So is our existence a miracle or natural? It's both. And that's where God is present. In the nature, he's existing, but also not defined by nature. And we're a testimony to that as a Jewish people. And that's why God asks us to mimic our lives in a way which we interact with nature but also remember that we are not defined by nature. And this is what I mentioned last week, the idea of Shabbos. The idea of Shabbos is if you want God's blessings, you got to do something. You got to do whatever naturally you can to make a vessel for God's blessings. Don't assume God's going to give your blessings because I believe in God. That's as good as the joke of the person who's drowning at sea. And he says, hey, God, come help me. And the boat comes and the and the helicopter comes and people even swim out to get him. And he keeps on saying, God's going to protect me. And finally, a voice comes out from heaven. And he says, I sent you the divers. I sent you the boat. I sent you the helicopter. What else do you want from me? Right. So in that vein, 
God asks from us to do whatever naturally is possible to bring his blessings forth. When Jacob was facing a threat of Ace of coming with an army of 400 people, he didn't just crawl up and pray to God. He prepared his men for war. He sent gifts to appease. He did diplomacy. And he also prayed. Right? And each one is a crucial part in Judaism. As much as we interact with nature, we also understand that whatever the outcomes don't have to be defined by nature. That's going to be defined by God. And that's why God tells us on Shabbos, take a day off. Because even though it may be very tempting to work and all that is, the end of the day, the blessings are from me. And I'm telling you, you could take a day off to make a statement that at the end of the day, my blessings are from God. And this is the key, this is a key concept in so many areas. I think I shared some of these ideas last week. But this is why, in general, we go to doctors when we when we study science. We've never found that as Jewish people engaging with science a contradiction to belief in God. On the contrary, the more we study the world, we're studying God's worlds. The more we study, the more we study the human being, and we find out natural means of how to heal people. We are the agents with God and bringing healing. And a doctor was a very prominent position within the Jewish community. Else. Because engaging with science and discovering means within God's creation on how to help others, that's partnering with God. At the same time, as much as we discover the world and interact with it, we also understand the humility that as much as we do, God is the one that's going to carry the line, that, that the God's will is what's going to be the final thing regardless of what we do. And we see it in medicine where you could, there's an element that's, we see, let's say even in business, right? You could plan and strategize as much as you want, but there's always a sense of luck in every business deal. There's plenty, if you speak to any businessman, especially the ones which are, you know, especially the ones which are wealthy beyond the way they're able to do that is because they're taking risks and not every risk pans out. Someone who's successful all the time, there's there, there's something wrong with that story. Now, there's one of the, uh, there's the Rebbe's had 12 statements, which encourage every child to memorize. One of them is if you work and you, if, if someone says he didn't try and he succeeded, don't believe him. If it says that he didn't, that he tried and he didn't succeed, also don't believe him. If it says he tried and he succeeded, then you believe him, right? In life, there's we there isn't an easy way out of things, and there isn't a one tone way of success. There, you can't say I followed and I fo- I studied everything and every so calculated and everything worked. That's usually not the way it works. And if someone says I sat down and I just believed in God and things worked out, that's not either true. There is a point of merge, a balance between the two, which is a healthy way of approaching life. On one hand, we work, we engage, we follow the, we follow whatever information we have, and then we take the leap of faith and trust God will take it on from there. And then if it's successful or not successful, we know it's the right thing. It's what was intended to happen, and we move on. And we're able to, you know, discover the next thing that's intended for us, the next opportunity. The duality that we're talking about is also found within 
Torah and mitzvah observance. Within each mitzvah that we do, many mitzvot, there are some mitzvot which we know have reasons for them. We celebrate, like we said, Shabbos, why we commemorate Shabbos. Rosh Hashanah is coming up. It's the Jewish New Year. It's a day of judgment. We blow the shofar to remind ourselves of repentance and crowning God as king, all these different reasons. And then there's certain mitzvot which don't have a very logical explanation. The one that's more prevalent, take, for example, kosher. And the reason why we keep kosher is because God said we should keep kosher. But the truth is every mitzvah has both opponents and they're reflective of these two modes. The idea of having a reason behind the mitzvah is the way God works with the nature, the way it's relatable. And then there's God, the way God is. And the way God is is not defined by anything. So that's the mitzvah. We do a mitzvah because that's what God said. Within each mitzvah, when we do it, we do it for both reasons. A, the main reason why we do any mitzvah is because that's what God says. So we're connecting with God in a way which is beyond nature, the way he's undefined. But we also do the mitzvah for the specific reasons that it may have. And that's the way God is more relatable, defined by nature and so on and, and the like. So this duality of God's presence is felt in Judaism in so many different areas, from more practical to the more esoteric. But this duality of the relationship permeates in almost all interactions that we have within faith within Judaism. And to finish off in chapter 5, what Titania does is questions, let's say that Sonic, the righteous person, or when our souls transcend after we one passes away and they're in the Garden of Eden and they're basking in the world to come in God's glory, do then do they lose the sense of reality that we have down here? And is then reality not a real reality? And they're in God's presence. They're beyond they're beyond the limitations of this world. And the Tanya basically brings out a very interesting thing. And he says, anytime there's consciousness, that means that there is an element of both names of God present. The idea that I'm, any form of consciousness is understanding God or reflecting on God, that means there's still the name of Elohim, the name of concealment is still a ploy. Because if one is fully in God's presence, then they wouldn't exist as their own entity or their own consciousness. So therefore, the reality that of our reality that we exist is a real reality to any form, really, of creation. Even when the soul leaves the body and is experienced God on a whole other plane and is in tune with God on a whole other level, it's still creation and reality is still a part of their experience. And he employs this a little bit from the story. Tanya doesn't use this example, literally, but this is, we can understand this a little bit from the story in the Torah about Moses' prophecy. Moses was the one, the Torah finishes off in the end of Deuteronomy, how Moses was the one individual which saw God, related to God like nobody else. Almost face to face, God spoke to him, not through vision, and so on. If you turn back a little earlier in the Torah, in the book of Genesis, when Moses is working with God to 
comfort the Jewish people, to atone on the fact that the Jewish people sinned against the golden calf. There's a very interesting exchange. And the exchange is, is that God, Moses says, can you reveal yourself to me? What does God tell Moses? My face you won't see, because one cannot see my face and live, but I'll you'll hide among this rock and I'll pass over you and you'll see my back. What's the story of this exchange? The story is very simple. Moses really wanted to be possible to really relate to God the way he is. And God says, the moment you do that, you will no longer be Moses. You can't see my face and live. But I'll give you the closest possible. You'll see my back. Meaning, as long as great a revelation it may be, it won't be the way I am myself. Because the second that happens, you no longer will be an individual conscious recognizing God. You'll just see how you're just me. <laughs> so with that said, and it goes through this in different elements, it uses a lot of Kabbalistic terms, but the key concept is in any part of creation, any mode where there's a consciousness, reality and existence is going to be part of that reality. So therefore, our souls and the way we interact, even prophecy, even ones which are, in, even the tzaddik, which is a spiritual being, and when you're in their presence, as many people describe when they were in the presence of the Rebbe, you feel that you're looking into someone that sees things on a different plane, they're still connected to reality the way we have. We know our reality. So our reality is very real within God's presence, within God's existence. And that's the finale. That wraps up this sort of, say, side question. Is our reality real, or is it just... Uh, subject to rules changing it's very real and also subject to changing <laughs> so therefore how do, what is and this is a very powerful thing what is this tells us that if you're doing the right thing don't allow nature to stop you and kind of like we tell our students don't allow don't allow others people's other people's opinions hold you back from your potential and no one knows your potential besides yourself. And even you don't know your potential unless you try. And you could defy all odds. How is that possible? We're defying, you know, I love how sometimes in sports they have stat cast. And they say a guy, 2% chance of catching the ball and the guy catches it, right? Now, <laughs> so is he, that's not realistic, you know, metrics to, to defy. But reality is, is that no one should be able to defy your potential besides yourself. And that is our approach as Jewish people. We've never allowed history to define us. We've never allowed statistics. We've never allowed our naysayers to define us. We've allowed the Torah to be our guide. And the Torah told us we can do this, we, we can do it. And that's why we're still here today so many years later. And we know that no matter what will happen, we'll continue to defy the odds in the future because we understand that as much as the world is defined by nature, it's also defined by God's nature. And that's something which is as unexplainable as the act of creation itself. So how this all comes together, go figure. You try to figure it out. But I can tell you the fact that we defy the odds day in and day out. And therefore, we should allow ourselves to stay strong to our guts, stay strong to our identities, stay strong to our morals, stay strong to the right thing. And even like Abraham, he could be the one guy in the world shouting from the hilltops what the right is. And everyone else seems like he's a lunatic. But we don't lose our sight from that because we know we're on God's world. And therefore, we could be confident 
that we'll be where we need to be tomorrow. And that's the empowerment from this uh, from this idea. So that wraps up the concepts from chapter five, also continuation from chapter four. We're going to, in chapter six, we're going to come back to defining the name of God of Elohim and how its connection is to nature. And by doing that, we're going to re-come back to the initial question that the Tanya, that the Alter Rebbe began the section in Tanya of wondering why it's so important to know that God exists in the heavens above and down below, below the earth. What is the, as opposed to what? What was the verse trying to um, forewarn that we would have misunderstood? That God is only present in the heavens or, or you know, if I went deep sea diving, all of a sudden God would disappear. What was the referent what's the verbiage of the the intention of the verse so that's going to be addressed in chapter six next week we're not going to have a lesson because there's a men's club on next wednesday so we're going to be skipping next week but god willing we'll be back in hopefully we'll be back in two weeks even though it's right before shoshana so we'll see what my schedule's like if i have my sermons prepared what in time or not <laughs> but uh hopefully we'll be back in two weeks so shana tova everybody and uh, looking forward to the next opportunity.